before we get started uh, in our time, I'd like to uh, ask that we pray together as a church. Uh, we've had uh, recent deaths in our church body. Um, it is good for us to pray for those families involved. And uh, I think that when a believer passes away, uh, not only is it a time of mourning, but also a time of hope for many people. If we can pray for God's power to work through that death, because when a believer passes away, it's done in hope. And that stands contrary to everything this world knows. And so I want to ask that we pray together. Um, I know Paul and Carol, they had their family, and they're uh, gathering this past Friday. Uh, then, of course, we have one uh, this evening at 6. Let's pray for the seeds of the gospel to go forth, because we have opportunity to proclaim the gospel, adding words to a life that people know, love. And so it's a powerful thing, but also for God's presence to be among us. So I'm going to ask if you'll join with me in prayer. Perhaps there's others that you know of uh, in our church body or, or outside uh, that are dealing with grief. Uh, and so this is a, a great opportunity for us as believers to minister to them, loving them, listening to them, uh, but certainly praying for them. So if you'll join with me in prayer. So Father, it is often somewhat bittersweet, and our end certainly feels more bitter, when we lose brothers and sisters in Christ, our church body, family. And Father, we just miss them, and we will. And Father, I thank you that you are not just someone out there somewhere, but you have intervened brought yourself into time and space through Jesus Christ to experience what we experience, to know what we know. Father, to endure the loss of a loved one. Father, and I just take a lot of comfort in remembering how Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus' friend and cried. So Father, we thank you that you have gone so much above and beyond. We're not just being God who loved us and created us, but a God who is our high priest, who ministered and know what it is to be a human. But Father, we thank you that we do have your promise. And it is out of your promise that we live, that we move, that we have our being out of your promise, out of your word, out of who you are. And Lord, that doesn't die when our heart stops beating. In fact, Lord, as we read your word and the testimony of Jesus and his resurrection by which we have a church to begin with, lets us know that there is much more to come. And Father, as your word says in 2 Corinthians 5, that it is as life, our bodies being swallowed up by life. Father, that there is a day when this tent would be put aside that our spirit lives in. But we long for and look forward to a a body, a tent that you'll make. Lord, we believe that and trust in that and hope in that for Miss Linda, for Miss Carolyn. 
But Lord, we pray that you would minister to those families, Lord. Let your presence be known. But Lord, use their life, use their example, that, that your word will go forth through them even beyond the grave. Minister in the hearts of those who know them, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. So here is my uh, souvenir from Kentucky. Uh, it's coal. <laughs> it's a little piece of coal uh, that we went hiking and, you know, it's laying around on the ground some places up there. And, of course, it's part of the reason why Lynch, Kentucky is there to begin with was uh, because of uh, coal mining. So I brought it home and thought I'd have a little fun with my, my boys and said, hey, I got your Christmas present here. Uh, and, uh, and they were actually kind of enthralled with it, you know. Uh, it's like, hey, this is neat. Uh, but then I kind of had a little fun with them, uh, with Evan, and said, well, you know, I, I, I've watched you when you thought no one was looking, and so here's your coal. And so it's interesting, because he didn't defend himself. I mean, what if someone said to you, I saw you when you thought no one was looking, and here's what you get for that. I give you a piece of coal. Would you protest? And what's interesting was watching because he kind of had a guilty look on his face. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he had, I had no idea. I, for a long time, I've had him thinking that I could, I could read his mind because uh, I thought that would be healthy parenting, you know. <laughs> he denies it now. That's, that's the problem when they're in the, in the service with us now, to speak up. But, uh, you know, what if someone could read your mind? What if... Someone could see all that you do and all that you think when you are believing no one is watching. Well, Cole would be optimist, wouldn't it? Uh, to think that's what we, we get for our desserts. And a lot of times we think of our faith of this, man, how can I make myself better? How can I improve my moral life so that God would be greater pleased with me? That God would love me more If I am better. And that frames our thinking so much. And so I want to bring 2 Corinthians 5.21 to our attention this morning. We have uh, last, this is the third time I've preached out of this message, out of this text, 2 Corinthians 5. A lot of this being born out of division in our society. Uh, And so we looked at 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5 in its entirety. Three messages ago, and looked at what is unifying uh, those commands, those promises that speak to people everywhere. Uh, when the text uses things like all people and no one and everyone uh, in 2 Corinthians 5. And then last time I preached here, I looked at uh, verse 20 who we are in Christ as ambassadors of Christ. What does that mean for us in relationships uh, to make that active uh, in our life? Uh, to understand that every relationship we are a, an ambassador of Christ in, and therefore we're looking for opportunities, and in every relationship having kingdom-minded uh, goals uh, in that relationship. And so the methods of loving someone, uh, knowing them, uh, and speaking truth to them, uh, and then helping them to do what is true what God has called them to do and understanding that we are God called 
difference makers in our society. Yes, God is the only one that can change people and the hearts of mankind, but he has chosen to use humans to do so. And that's amazing. It's, a, it's just kind of a strange mix of how God's changing this world through us, through humans. And so I want to now look at verse 21 because it's so powerful. It is the gospel in its nutshell, and it's so counter to how we think and how we feel, how we judge ourselves. And I just want to talk a little bit about what the gospel is and then its implications and how we think and how society is to view one another from a Christian worldview. Uh, and so, it's a very simple passage, uh, but please, let's stand in honor of this being God's word and what an amazing word it is. I'm going to read verse 20, 21, and then chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. You may be seated. So, before I look at the implications, and some of which I've already brought to you, that we have a new self-image, a new way of viewing ourselves, a new method, new motivations, that comes from this. So I'm going to talk about what is the gospel first. Uh, so much of our life is about you do X and you expect God therefore to do Y. So if you live good enough, therefore God will treat you in a certain way. So if you don't think you feel that way, let me just challenge you when bad things happen. When something bad happens in your life, is it not normal for us to say, God, why did you let that happen? After all, I have... You fill in the blank. I've been good. I've gone to church. I believe in you. I've read your Bible. I've memorized the word. I've given money. I've treated people fairly. And so we have this mindset, if I do this, therefore, God, you ought to treat me this, this way. And when bad things happen, we feel like God has messed up the deal. God, you, you, you evidently are not fair. You're not just. You're reneged on the deal. And, and simply, as I read the Bible, God's not making deals. For several reasons, one of which God is way too holy to think that you can impress him. And the second reason, we are way too sinful to think somehow we can dig ourselves out of the pit. And we just, we don't realize the depth that we're in. So, uh, when we look at this, uh, I've shared with you before, imagine seeing something so wonderful, so magnificent that it escapes, it makes you think that you forget about your agenda. Oh, you see this in the mountains. We got to see some of these things this past week of these sites like, whoa, this is amazing. And realizing God has made these things. And I just want to remind you that the things that sometimes captivate us in beauty and majesty and grandness and, and how God uh, made things to create all in us, God is greater than all those things. And so if we are in all of things God has made, how much more should we be in all of God? And the problem is is that we live in this world that God has made, and we are constantly working against Him. 
trashing his world. How do we do so? Well, simply by living in the world thinking it's for us. Being more concerned with who we are than the God who made us. Imagine if you have a car and I come into your car and think, well, this is a wonderful car. It's a it's nice plush interior. I love the, the gadgets you've got going on. It's a smooth ride. Let's feel how, how the engine accelerates and I'm so impressed with it. I then, uh, when we get back to uh, stopping, I say, I tell you what, I like this car so much, I think I'm going to write my name right on the dashboard. And I just get my, my uh, little marker, my permanent marker and say, this now belongs to Jared. And I, I then come in, I take my shoes, and I'm like, yeah, you know, I just got mud all over these things, got mud on the carpet, and, and uh, I then proceed to try to take the keys from you. Well, there should be resistance on your end and a great offense, right? Why? Because I am entering in, and, and, and now I'm claiming for my own that which belongs to you. It's called stealing, right? <laughs> there's, there's punishment for such things. Listen, this is you got to understand, this world belongs to God. And when we come into it, born just, you know, we struggle with math. And yet we say, God, I'm going to figure out my own way to, to make the life purpose. I, one of my cousins just say that. I'm going to make it my own religion. Really? You know, Jesus has done that. Um, and, and, I, and I happen to know him. I remember him. I know how he struggled with things. I'm like, you're not that bright. And I'm not that bright to think that I can just pick up stuff and that this is going to give my purpose in life. And the the thing is, is that we are born with this innate sense that everything revolves around us. All right, this is what the Bible calls sin. This is to say, I put myself first. And do we ever wonder that when a society of people live like that, problems happen? Sin is antisocial because it says it puts me first. Therefore, when you work around a bunch of people who are putting themselves first, there will be problems. And there will be those who will scratch their head and think, man, what? maybe we just need to educate people more. Maybe we just need to improve our technology more. Education and technology is not going to change the motivation problem that we have in our heart. And so we just need to understand what we've got going on here Uh, as we read about who we are. And so, then we think about, uh, you know, some of you may be sitting here and thinking, well, you know, I'm just kind of sitting in, and I'm not, (laughs) problem is, all you religious people are the same. You talk big, you act big, but you don't live right. You ever heard that? You ever thought that? I would agree with you. We're all kind of in that same boat. But I would just challenge you to say, okay, you who judge others, are you able to do what you yourself know is right and wrong? When you're honest, we're all going to be in the same boat. It doesn't matter what code of conduct you're going by, even your own code of conduct you invent, you can't even live up to it. But you know there was one who did. Jesus. He was the one and the only one who operated out of a pure love for God the Father. He was the only one that acted out and obeyed all that God asked him to do with a right heart, a good heart. And he was the one that God allowed to face the punishment 
of sinners. That's what we have here in 2 Corinthians 5.21. When we look at the gospel, it says simply, for our sake, he made him to be sin. All right. For our sake, he made him to be sin. So not, not just pay for your sin, he became your sin. He became, you know, I grew up in a pastor's home and I learned how to act right, speak right, do right when I'm around people who I thought were right. I grew up breathing hypocrisy. Jesus became my hypocrisy. <laughs> it's crazy. Whatever your sin is, Jesus didn't just pay for sin, he became that sin. And as much as you might have just riled up and, and get angry at the fact that I may have wrote your, my name on your dashboard, or, or ladies, perhaps I, I uh, wrote my, my name in your white, clean carpet with my shoes and mud. Whatever offense that is, it is nothing in comparison to the offense that God has with sin. There is a standard of holiness we can't get, we don't know. But Jesus became that sin. And so when you keep on reading this, and it just gets more amazing as I read it. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He never knew shame. He never knew what it was like to be separated from God the Father for eternity. They were never bored with one another for eternity. There was always this amazing love that has been there since before time began. This one. Who knew no sin, he became sin. Why on earth, Father, did you allow that to happen to Jesus the Son? What would have been such a motivation for you to do such a thing like that? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. (sighs) All the things I long for, all the things I hope to be, God has declared I am through Jesus Christ. So, you know, for those of you who, who superhuman or super um, superheroes are pretty big, uh, combo books. And so, Superman, he's the guy that's perfect. You know, he's always right. He's he's always uh, n- nothing can defeat him unless Kryptonite. But we, it's funny how many people don't like Superman. They don't like super. They like they like the Batman's. They like the Iron Man. Someone's self-made. But this guy is Superman. He's too perfect. Isn't it funny how that always happens in society? We get that person that's in your class that's always just right all the time, answers all the right questions, and always acts correctly. Who, who becomes their friend? No one becomes their friend. That's like the, that's the goody tissues, right? That's the, the nickname we have for them. And so we purposely then say, I don't want to answer the questions because I don't want to come across that way. Superman becomes that man. You know, he's that one that's too perfect. Why do we not like them? Because we're not them. We don't like someone showing us who we're not. So when Jesus comes to this world, this world rejects them. The light shone in the darkness, and the darkness rejected the light. That's Jesus Christ who does this. So here's the thing. What's so crazy is that God gives us. <laughs> he gives us this exchange. And so and as, in uh, Genesis 48, you have this, this uh, picture of um, 
of Jacob blessing his, his grandsons. And so Joseph's sons come up, and there's the older and the younger. And so the, the tradition was that the older one receives the best blessings. And so Jacob is going to make these two his sons and, and, uh, and take them in Joseph's place. And so instead of having the old one given his right hand, the right hand of blessing... Uh, he exchanges and crosses hands and gives to the younger the right hand a blessing and the older the left hand, which was an inferior blessing. And so it's a kind of a picture of what God the Father is doing to us. We've got Jesus and you've got you. And so instead of giving the right hand of blessings on Jesus, he switches it and gives it to you. And you take, he takes your sin. This exchange that's happened is totally done by grace. So let me just share, what are the implications if you believe that? So that makes it different from everything else. We are either gospel-driven or we're driven by religion. All right? There's a difference between being driven by the gospel and driven by religion. Religion is let me excel, let me perform, let me do the best I can of what I believe is right and good. Therefore, therefore by, I hope that God will be more pleased with me. All right, so what is the difference? Well, first of all, it gives us a new self-image. This, what are the implications? It gives us a new self-image, a way of thinking. How do you get your self-image? Think about this. How do you ever get your self-image? Isn't it based on performance? How you perform. How you perform in whatever field you choose and this is where we become our personalities. We choose certain fields that will identify us. And we choose that these things I have greater success or a chance of succeeding in, in this field, thereby I can choose to identify myself in a, in a pleasing way. So, the problem with that is that we have this gospel, and it says it has nothing to do with our performance. Totally gives us a new way of looking at ourselves. So it brings up those who fell. You think about that. Those who fell, who, who morally, intellectually, whatever way we want to describe, they're just like, you're a loser. I'm a loser. What, what the gospel does? Yeah, you're a loser. And I'm going to bring you up. I'm going to give you what you cannot deserve. And gives us the right standing of God. Isn't that amazing? But then there are those of us who feel like we are excelling in our morality. This, this would have been the Pharisees, and this is the reason why they hated Jesus, because he was saying to them, it doesn't really matter, and brings that aspect down and says it's all by God's grace. I mean, think about that. What if you lived your life the best you knew how? Did what was right, loved people, was generous, and there was another person that grew up with you that was a scoundrel that was corrupt in every form and was always looking out to increase their own goods at every turn, no matter who paid the cost. But both of you at the end of your life died, and this other one, before dying, had encountered a God who was greater than him, saw the corruptness of his life, and asked and sought God's forgiveness, and God gives him right standing after a lifetime of being corrupt. How do you deal with that? You see, that's what the gospel does. And so when we look at this, it, it changes how we view ourselves. It brings up those who have failed according to the standards of the world and brings down those who have succeeded according to the standards of the world. 
So it's not my performance that matters, it's Jesus. So let me tell you how that changes us. I talked, this is done in the context of being ministers of reconciliation. Think about this. How many of our arguments are usually done because we get the sense that someone's trying to make us feel inferior? I was, I was just watching, listening throughout this week. I won't name names because I've been with the church folks this week. But anytime there was tension, I was just observing and thinking, who's being made feel inferior? And there was always someone that was struggling because there's the, the conversation or, or the, the attitudes was being reflected. Someone's being made feel inferior and there was this rise. The gospel says, yes, you're inferior. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. When we think about racism, there is a majority culture and there's a minority culture. Most of us are majority culture. Have you ever thought about the pride that's done among ethnicities? That there's a sense of, I want to make our ethnicity feel better be better about themselves, and one method is to put others down. And then there is the minority ethnicity that fills this and fills a sense of inferiority and is looking for that, looking for where does the majority treat us as inferior. And so it, it's right at the heart. When we think about the gospel, speaking right to the heart of who we are, when there's this sense of people groups that feel inferior or superior based on their skin are their performance. This is where the gospel comes in. It's interesting, in Galatians chapter 2, Paul is talking about the gospel and he's being challenged by the church in Jerusalem about really you're saved by grace. It's, it's none of these, the Jewish teachings. And, 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 and being examined by Peter and James and others, they simply state to him, yes, we agree with you. You're, are, you are saved by the grace of God. You don't need to be circumcised or uncircumcised. You don't need to follow dietary laws. Just Take care of those who are poor and, re- and uh, regard sexual morality. And Paul says, and these are the very things we're pleased to do. In other words, the gospel now allows us to and be involved in society. Where society would say, you're less than by being in this place. But we are listening to God who says, no, you're not judged by the world standard anymore. I'm giving you the righteousness of God. So there's a new self-image, not done by my performance. This applies to whether you're a father, applied to your mother, children. So, you know, we come across Mormons. Mormons are great people. Every Mormon I know are upstanding in character. They're the type of guys that, yeah, I want them working around me. So when we have this mindset of, man, if I'm going to be a good Christian, I better be better than a Mormon. But what if you're not? Have you ever thought about that? 
I have. Man, I'm not nearly, I don't behave nearly as well as some of these Mormons. Our Jehovah's Witnesses, and, and, and you feel, listen, what makes us Christian isn't moral upstanding character. Do you understand that? What makes us Christian is the grace of God in our life. And so just because I'm not nearly as good as someone else doesn't mean I'm any less of a Christian because my Christianity isn't based on that behavior. It's based on the grace of God in my life. So it's not going to be just whether I, I, I dot all the I's and cross all the T's morally, but there is going to be a difference in my attitude in my heart and how I view myself and others. So let's talk about some of those motivations. So we, we looked at what is the implication of the Gospels. Well, it has uh, it, one implication is that we have a new self-image of a form of how we view ourselves. But then there's this new motivation. What are some of the motivations that comes with this? Well, first of all, there is an extreme joy that God puts in. When you read 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, when you understand what it's saying about you, it produces an, an, an unusual joy that's in our life. And that is how we operate. So when you're operating out of being morally good, you're operating out of fear. Do you get that? If I don't do this good, then someone's going to reject me. And so out of fear of rejection, we do what is good. Uh, we behave ourselves and we conform in conduct. The problem with that is it's still external being pressured on us, but it's not in our heart. And it's going to come out either in the form of resentment or we're going to eventually just go back. So we're operating out of fear, but this now is saying that we're operating out of joy. What has God done for us? This depth of joy that is being put in our life. It's a, a costly gift. In fact, God said, or Jesus said it this way when talking to one of the Pharisees. He saw this woman who was a sinner, a known sinner. Everyone was like, man, you know, this woman is loose uh, morally. Uh, in fact, when this woman came in and washed Jesus' feet, the religious leader was looking at Jesus thinking if he was really a man of God, he would know what kind of woman this is and would have nothing to do with her. But it was to this woman, Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. And then he said to this man, Simon, he said, Simon, let me tell you a story. He tells a story of a, of a man who loaned out money. Neither one of them could pay uh, to two people what they, what they could owe. Or it, one was a huge amount, the other one was a lesser amount, but it didn't matter because they didn't have either one. But the moneylender forgave them both. And Jesus asked Simon, Simon, which one do you think loved the moneylender, the king, the most? And rightly, Simon said, well, I guess it was the one that was forgiven the most. And Jesus said, you said rightly. You see, it is understanding our sin. One of the things the Holy Spirit is going to do in our life, he's going to bring to our attention our sin. Not so that we will feel bad by our, on, by, about us. There is going to be this conviction that does feel bad about our sin. There's the shame that comes with the sin. But when we turn it to God and experience the forgiveness of God, that shame, that degree of shame, turns into that same degree of joy. When you experience the forgiveness of God in this. It is an amazing thing. And that's why the, the sin is brought to us. That's why we have 
<laughs> a whole bunch of pages that describe what sin is. That's one of the reasons the Old Testament is there is to show us what this is, to show the degree of preciousness of what God has given to us, thereby we give joy. And the joy of the Lord becomes our strength. And so we operate out of this joy. But when we see the gospel, it also produces humility. So um, I've shared with you, and, and some of you know, my family, we have driven Cadillacs. Um, and everybody as a pastor, I'll get this statement, well, I guess we're paying you too much. <laughs> I said, well, that's between you and God. <laughs> but I just want to assure you, I have Cadillacs not because I'm getting paid. It's just gift. Uh, you know, just a gift. Um, God has given us a family that has done that in the past. And, um, but it's, it's kind of a crazy thing when you're driving a Cadillac and uh, you know you didn't pay for it. It's funny how people look at you differently, you know. People uh, tailgate me much more now. <laughs> they can right up on me. I don't know. They think I'm, I don't know, I don't, I'm going to drive slower. Maybe I do drive slower uh, in a Cadillac. But it... But I can't walk out of the Cadillac thinking, look at me, my Cadillac. You can't do that when it's been given to you. And so it's this kind of this weird mix of, yeah, it's a great car. I thank God for it. I didn't work for it. You see, when the gospel comes to us, it is such a precious thing, so worthwhile, so, something that you know you don't deserve, you couldn't get it if you worked a thousand years, and so it produces this kind of mix of humility and confidence. Others can be, easily be a better husband than I am. That's not why I've got the grace of God in my life whether I'm a good husband or not. I've got the grace of God in my life because God just wanted to do it. But it does compel me. And so when we think about this in our society, this divided, one of the greatest things that this society needs is humility. Interesting, when you read how does this gospel work? He says in chapter 6, verse 1, they work together then. We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Let it have its effect in our life. And then he talks about being a servant of God because of this in, chapter, in verse 4. And then he talks about where being a servant of God with this grace of God, with this, this gospel, how it's commended by endurance. In afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. This gospel becomes evident by purity, by knowledge, by patience, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by, by genuine love. The gospel becomes evident by truthful speech, by the power of God. And then verse 8, the power of God, the gospel becomes evident through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We're treated as impostors, yet not true, or yet true, as unknown, yet well known, as dying, yet behold we live, as punished, yet not killed. In other words, the gospel comes out in this strange mix of paradoxes. Humble, yet confident. There's nothing but the gospel 
that can produce in one human being confident humility. That doesn't exist apart from God, apart from the gospel with this mix together. So our society is preaching tolerance. That is the uh, intolerable sin (laughs) is to be intolerant. We will tolerate all degree except for intolerance. Interesting. The very thing that we hate, we become by being intolerant of intolerant people. And then hypocrisy becomes even more evident. God has called us to a greater thing, and that's love. Loving people. That comes through humility and confidence. It comes through the gospel. It becomes loved by someone, though I've been unlovely. And so that now is the truth whereby we live. So let the world preach tolerance. Those who follow Christ exhibit love and teach the truth of love. They go hand in hand. And so you, you have this interesting mix. You've, you've got this humility with confidence. We've got the gospel that gives us hope. We, we are amazed at our own salvation. As, as much as I'm going to be amazed at the fact that these mountains go forever looking like waves, or that I can go to the ocean and, and keep looking till my eyes fell me, or I can go and look up at the stars and see beyond number the stars and the expanse of the universe, as much as I'm amazed by that, the greatest amazement yet is to know my depth of sin, yet God has called me his own. That is the most amazing thing. And if that fails to amaze you, then you have failed to come to the grasp of the gospel and let it have its effect in you. You've been enchanted by lesser things. If you can't see that, to know that. So it gives us this upside down way of living. We get power by confessing and repenting of our sins. I mean, you think about it. Whatever you do in this world, don't show weakness. You know, but by the gospel, that's exactly what you do, and that's where our strength comes from. You don't ever admit you're wrong, but in the gospel, you better admit you're wrong because that's the only way there is forgiveness and atonement. Success comes by suffering. So there's this weird paradox that's happening. And so as we keep on reading, it gives us, the gospel gives us, well, we don't fit in the categories, We blow apart the categories as a Christian. For instance, we look at the world, and the Bible says that there's sin in every human being. So therefore, we look at America, this grand experiment of a government, and we see, yeah, there's ability to be corrupt here. And so when we see social uh, forces at, at work that are pitting one another, that are hurting one another, that when we see things of Katrina and the effects of that, when I was in Lynch, Kentucky, I I saw, um, well, a society neglected and forgotten in many ways, yet there was this police force, and and we went to this uh, area of apartments, and there was meth lab, and addictions going on, and I said to myself, police know about this, they're aware of this, and they're letting it go, and that's how society works, where might makes right, and whoever has the biggest bucks makes what's right. We shouldn't be surprised by that. Why? Because we believe what the Bible says that within mankind it's sin. But yet, 
we have the greatest optimist thoughts towards society. How, do, how can we be optimist and pessimist at the same time to say, this is the way mankind is. There is going to be this sin nature, even in our police force, that's there, but yet have hope to believe that God can and will work and do something magnificent there. And so that's the craziest thing about Lynch is that you see neglect after neglect and societal force and decay. And, the, you know, you see this, but yet you look around and you see people moving there as followers of Christ, it's a town of 700. I mean, it's not like there's a lot of people here, but there's people moving here, and they're springing up ministries and businesses. Why? Because they have a hope, not in the people, but in the God who loves them. So this is this crazy mix of optimism and pessimism. To say, you know what? America may not be great anymore, but I'm okay because God is great, and if he wants to, he can make America great. And I'm called to be a minister of reconciliation, and God may use me and use you to help make America great if he wants to. So you've got this mix that happens of pessimism and optimism. We blow the labels down. Not Christianity, not evangelism, but the gospel. Do you know the difference there? Our job is to try to be as true to the gospel as we can. When I look at this, I want this, verse 21, to be the bedrock, not only how I view myself, how we are as a church, but how I'm to operate in society. As a majority culture, when we deal with those who are minority, understand they have been living in a society of sin where they can look back and they cannot trace their ancestors because somewhere along the way it was done by slaves. And that is the world they live in. Where the majority culture is looking at them out of fear. And now they're fearful. And I can't say to them, well, let's fix our education. I can't say to them, let's fix our institutions. I can't say to them, let's fix our laws. I can't say to them, well, let's make sure we have a a minority as president. Because that's not the hope. And it does start individual by individual. Know what the gospel is, the power of the gospel, to know that I am not defined by my past. I'm not defined by my skin. I'm not defined uh, by my education. I'm not defined by my role in society. I'm defined by God and this gospel. And that is why we as a church have got to keep preaching the gospel. To be ministers of reconciliation. But to do it in the same way Jesus did it. To know the people. To love the people. And the part of the problem is that we don't really know people different from us. And we don't listen to sources of information different than what we already think and believe. As we read this gospel, part of the challenge might be, maybe I should try to Listen to someone that I don't normally listen to. With the hope 
of showing them the gospel. No one's going to cost me to do so, but it's okay because God has made me a child of his. And that's a powerful thing. So I'm going to invite you to do that. Just find someone in your life that you don't normally talk to because they're different. Whatever form, whatever fashion. Maybe you viewed them as lesser. But you did so now out of performance. That's the one that perhaps God would have you to talk to. Love. And see great hope for them. Because it's not about their performance. It's not how your friends look at you. This gives you so much courage, guys. To know that you're not defined by what your friends think of you. We become like Frankenstein. We take little pieces of what they think and what they believe, and we try to make it what we think and what we believe so we'll be appealing to them. But we don't even know who we are anymore because we're determined by everyone else. Go to the gospel. Go to the one who made you, who loved you, who knows the end of your life. Find courage out of the grace of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.